0: Please turn in your Bibles to the little book of 2 John. We've called 2 John a postcard-sized letter, and it would have fit on one page back in the first century. I would also, before we start, remind you that it is written by the Apostle John, who of all the apostles was known as the Apostle of Love. And that's going to be important to remember. If you found 2 John, we're going to approach the message this morning a little differently than usual. We need to begin this morning by remembering what we've seen so far as the theme of the Apostle John in this letter. Lord willing, we're going to conclude our study on this little letter today. But in the first six verses, John laid out the necessity of both love and truth. You have to live the truth. You have to love the truth. These twin virtues of truth and love are inseparable. We are not called to try to balance one against the other. Like this situation needs a little more truth and and a little less love. Well, oh, now this situation needs a little more love and a little less truth. Since Jesus lived a a life of perfect truth and love, he's our example. Jesus has set an example in truth and love in everything that he said and, and in everything that he did. Jesus declared himself to be the truth and he demanded his disciples be identified in their displays of love. And so look at the first six verses again. We'll read them just so you can see how John insists... "'Truth and love are inseparable. "'The elder unto the elect lady and her children "'whom I love in the truth, "'and not I only, but also all they "'that have known the truth. "'For the truth's stake, which dwells in us "'and shall be with us forever. "'Grace be with you, mercy and peace "'from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, "'the Son of the Father, in truth and love.'" I rejoice greatly that I found of thy children walking in truth as we have received commandment of the Father. And now I beseech you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto you, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. Now I want us to be perfectly clear about that background because unless we are firmly rooted in these twin virtues of truth and love, we're going to misunderstand what the rest of this letter has to say. In the first six verses, John has stressed truth and love and he is not going to abandon that theme in the middle of this tiny letter. However, at verse 7, The letter does take a sharp turn, a turn we're only going to follow by embracing the biblical foundation that he's established in the first six verses. Truth and love never oppose each other. And our lives in Christ are a calling to always display truth and love in their fullness. But sometimes, I think you'll agree, that ain't easy. You've experienced times in your life where you have opened up the Bible and find what seems clear on paper presents a challenge in practice. The reason John is writing is because the folks who have received this letter are facing one of those kind of practical challenges, specifically, how are they supposed to show Christian love to those who are denying the truth? Sometimes there's people who are denying the truth by the message they proclaim. Sometimes there's people who are denying the truth in the lives that they live. How do we, who are entirely dedicated to truth and love, show love to those who oppose the truth? Verses 7 through 13, John answers that question. And I think his answer might surprise some of us, because it requires a radical readjustment of our ideas of love. So let's read, starting at verse 17. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ has not God. He that abides in the doctrine of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, Receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed, for he that bids him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. Having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. What we'll learn from the text this morning. And I will repeat this statement several times this morning. Since truth and love are inseparable, we cannot embrace any situation which requires a denial of truth from ourselves or a misrepresentation of truth to others. Now, we're going to examine this, the text this morning in, in two main points. And we'll, we'll, I'll have a little bit to say about the conclusion in verse 12 and 13. But the main points are the necessity to define truth in verses 7 through 9 and defend truth in verses 10 and 11. So defining the truth, verses 7 through 9. Last week, one of our main Points of the message was that truth, if you remember, truth is knowable. John writes up in verse 1 of other Christians as they have known the truth. We need to recognize from the context that John's not only arguing that the truth is knowable, but he assumes that the readers of this letter actually know the truth. He says something very similar, if you remember, back in 1 John. In 1 John 2, Verses 21 and 22, he says of that letter, I have not written unto you because you don't know the truth, but because you know it and that no truth, no lie is of the truth. Who is a liar but he that denies that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist. He denies the Father and the Son. Anyone who held or promoted doctrinal error in regard to Christ, John bluntly calls them liars. They are deceivers. But remember, for John, truth is not only something that you know, it's also expressed in the things that you do. Truth is what you believe, and truth is also how you are to behave. And so just prior to our text, up in verse 4, John said he greatly rejoiced when he saw some of the believers from this church who were walking in truth, walking in the commandments given to the Father. They were living truth. I think the context would tell us that John rejoiced to see it because some of the folks in that church had gone out into the world and in the process of going out into the world, they were perhaps unwittingly, entering enemy territory, a place where there were out there some so-called Christians who in reality denied Christ himself and lived immoral lives. In verse 7, he's going to describe them as like evangelists of error. I mean, he uses very blunt terms. Look at verse 7 and see how deception is against Christ. For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Now look carefully at what John says in verse seven. He does not say many deceivers are in the world, although that would be true. It would hardly be a shocking revelation, right? He says they've entered into the world, right? If John, in the way he pictures the world, is, well, you have the family of God, and outside of the family of God, you have this evil world system. He says some people have entered into the world. Where do you think they came from? Did they come from Mars? They have entered into the world. I think the letters of John's written is going to show us they've entered into the world from inside of Christianity itself. And given the connection of this letter to John's first letter, and remember, he's he's about to call these deceivers antichrists, Right? I think we can identify these dangerous folks that John's talking about. Listen to 1 John 2, verses 18 and 19. You might remember this from the first study in 1 John. He says, "'Little children, it is the last time, "'and as you have heard that antichrist shall come,' Even now, there are many antichrists. His, hereby, we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest they were not all of us. These deceivers had defected from Christianity itself. Most likely, from inside the church at Ephesus, who I think John's writing the first letter to. And they're going out, proved that they were never part of the family of God. But this letter, 2 John, which I think is written to a church somewhere nearby Ephesus, John warns that they're likely going to encounter some of those defectors who still claim the name Christian, but in reality they are missionaries of satanic propaganda. They deny the truth about Jesus, John says in verse 7. They're lurking in the shadows of every kind of false teaching is a misunderstanding and misrepresentation about the person and work of Jesus. That can happen in many different ways. A false teacher might deny that Jesus is fully and eternally God. They might deny that he is in fact the uncreated creator. They might deny that he was born of a virgin or deny that he lived sinlessly and he died on the cross on behalf of sinners. They might deny that he physically and literally rose from the dead. In this case, John says specifically he's concerned about those who do not confess that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. The strange thinking in the first century seems to have followed some biblical truth and combined human logic to the point that they promoted this weird teaching that Jesus was only a spirit being and not a real flesh and blood person. Right? Their their teaching probably went something along the line of, well, don't the apostles teach us that, You know, the spiritual things are good and all flesh is evil. Do you really think that Jesus came in the flesh? Doesn't it make more sense that he was just spiritual? Well, yes, I do believe that Jesus came in the flesh. He came as real flesh because he was born of Mary. He lived with real blood because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. I believe in a real flesh and blood Jesus. A Jesus who came because we are all desperately lost sinners and we need a Savior. And He is the Savior God's provided. That if we repent of our sins and trust in Him, we can have eternal life. Now, without delving any further into their particular error, I want you to note that John presents all deviations from truth as error. As Jesus is the truth, any misrepresentation of Jesus is a lie. It's a deception, and such deceptions are not innocent. They're never unimportant. John says those who proclaim these things, he calls them deceivers and antichrists. John's the only writer in the New Testament to use this term, antichrist. But other writers identify that there is this Future character known as, in other places, the man of sin, the son of perdition, the the lawless one. The Antichrist is coming at some point in the future. But we don't have to just say, well, that's the future, because John says repeatedly, the spirit of Antichrist is here, right now. In many ways, you may, you may know how I've tried to teach that the kingdom of God is something that's coming, but the kingdom of God is something that exists already. We talk about the already not yet kingdom. Well, can I apply that idea to the already not yet antichrist, right? There's a, there's antichrist coming, but there is already an antichrist spirit in the world that is promoting deception, denying the person and work of Jesus. What antichrist means is simply opposed to Christ. Deception is against Christ. In verse 8, deception is dangerous. John says, look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, that we receive a full reward. Look to yourselves. Watch yourself. We have to take seriously the warning to guard against false teaching. Listen, not everyone will do that. The concern, even by the apostles, in the earliest days of Christianity, the apostles continually expressed a concern that churches would not be willing to be vigilant and on guard about false teaching. Listen to the the real concern from the apostle Paul when he wrote to the church at Corinth and 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3 and 4. Just listen to this. But I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if one comes who preaches another Jesus who we have not preached... Or if you receive a different spirit that you have not received or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Right? Are you going to be discerning of deception or not? And if you're not, John says here in verse 8, you are in danger of finding that you will, everything you have accomplished is going to be lost. He says in verse 8 that guarding ourselves is so that we don't Lose those things which we have wrought. We can't be complacent about truth because if we do, we'll lose what is good that we've accomplished and we will not, John says, receive our full reward. Now, of course, this isn't saying that we'll lose our salvation, but much like our text this morning in Revelation 3.11, we can lose a reward for being faithful, for being obedient. Loyalty to the truth, to Christ himself, demands that we remain vigilant against the dangers of deception. Deception is against Christ. Deception is dangerous. In verse 9, deception is ungodly. Look at verse 9. Whoever transgresses and abides not in the doctrine of Christ has not God. He that abides in the doctrine of Christ, he has both the Father and the Son. Now, there is a a textual variant here that is worth noting. Some manuscripts say, just like this, whoever transgresses and some say whoever goes beyond. The difference in Greek is between the words parabeno and parago and they sound somewhat alike, but It's interesting that both ways make good sense. Generally, we think of the word transgress in the terms of sin. Violating the commandments of God is transgression. It's failure to take the truth we believe and put it into the practice of how we behave. And so John says here that such a transgression is not abiding in the doctrine or the the teaching of Christ. Remember, John describes truth as both what we believe and how we behave. If you live in a manner that doesn't reflect the truth, he says such a person does not have God. On the other hand, if the meaning is whoever goes beyond, then it means whoever goes beyond is not abiding or remaining in the doctrine of Christ. There, the idea would be that there is an established Apostolic truth is declared in the New Testament through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You are called to declare that truth, to live that truth, to believe that truth. And if you declare something that is beyond, if you go beyond that truth, then you're not abiding in that truth. We're called to believe and practice all that the word of God teaches without taking away from it and without adding to it. And when you endeavor to invent some new truth the way these false teachers did, you have gone beyond or, or literally the wording would be such a person goes too far. Either way, whether this is a concern about the behavior of a deceiver or the doctrine of a deceiver, either way, you can identify... Deception, as John says, it is not living in line with the teaching of Christ. And his assessment is blunt. That person does not have God. Only the individual who lives, who abides in the teaching of Jesus, has both the Father and the Son. Belief and obedience go hand in hand for the disciple of Jesus. If you you say that you obey the teaching of Jesus, but you don't believe the truth about Jesus, then you're not really obeying him because your lack of belief is a rejection of the Messiah who said, believe in God, believe also in me. On the other hand, if you say that you believe in Jesus, but that you won't obey Jesus, then you don't really believe Jesus. Your refusal to obey him is a rejection of the perfect man who said, if you love me, keep my commandments. For these deceivers who've gone out, these evangelists of evil, disbelief and disobedience marked their lives as such. John says they don't have a relationship with the father. They don't have a relationship with the son Verses 7 through 9 is John's means of defining the truth. But now, defending the truth, he gets to that in verses 10 through 11. And to grasp verses 10 through 11, it's going to help for us to go back to a first century mindset. If you were in the first century, traveling outside of your home area, you weren't going to be able to book some quick lodging on Travelocity or Priceline, right? That's not to say that there weren't inns and lodging available to be purchased, but it was expensive and it was also both unsafe and unsuitable for Christians most times. Like lodging houses were generally either taverns or brothels. Christians were not going to stay there. And it's for this reason that the New Testament frequently encourages what we call Christian hospitality. If you remember, one of the qualifications of being an elder is that you are hospitable, right? You'll show hospitality. In in Hebrews 13.2, the writer of Hebrews admonishes Don't forget to show hospitality to strangers for some people in doing so have unknowingly entertained angels. You can well imagine how some of these Christ-denying, traveling missionaries of deceit would take advantage of Christian hospitality. There are accounts outside of Scripture of Writers who talked about these charlatans who would claim the name of Christian in order to essentially live off Christian kindness. The Apostle Paul actually warned about this in 2 Timothy 3.6. He writes about this sort that creep into houses and entrap the gullible. You can see where this is going, I, I think. Some churches in Asia Minor outside of Ephesus either already had or were about to encounter these Antichrist defectors from the church at Ephesus. And they'd received a copy of John's first letter with all its warnings and admonitions about showing love in our actions and demanding truth and doctrine. And it's quite possible that they wrote to the Apostle John and asked, well, now what? Now what are we supposed to do? Truth demands that we reject false teachers Love demands that we show hospitality. In this situation, aren't truth and love at odds with each other? So John very briefly writes this letter as an answer. There's no compromise between truth and love. The uncompromising answer is rejecting all untruth is an act of love. Let me say again, since truth and love are inseparable, we cannot embrace any situation which requires a denial of truth from ourselves or a misrepresentation of truth to others. Look at verse 10 and see how John says to decline aid to deceivers the beginning of verse 10 he says if there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine receive him not into your house don't let him in. don't don't put him up in your house i know this sounds harsh and in fact it is written in such a harsh manner that some bible commentators over the years have essentially concluded that john was wrong There was one guy named C.H. Dodd who said, look, this must have been some kind of emergency situation, and yet even in that situation, I don't think I would do this. Another said, "This, this can't be a continuing Christian mandate. Love must find a way. But listen, this is love's way. We have to understand that. John is not ambiguous here. You cannot accept false beliefs and false behaviors turning a blind eye to truth in the name of love. To really grasp this, it helps us to remember that hospitality in the first century. If someone came into your community and you offered them hospitality in your home, you were essentially affirming to the rest of your community that these people are okay. You're vouching for their character. Can you imagine someone coming in our church this morning and saying, hi, I'm a, I'm a traveling preacher. I'm staying with the mentors Oh, well, welcome. Would you like to preach this morning? Because if you're okay with Gary and Sherry, you've got to be okay. In such a circumstance in which some visitor who endorses false belief and and engages in bad behaviors It would endanger the faith of the household that put them up, but it would also endanger the spiritual lives of all those they encounter as a result of that hospitality. And so John says, look, don't let them use your home as a base of operations. Don't offer them support and assistance so that they can more effectively deny the truth. Now, he's not saying don't talk to them. Don't don't invite them in and give them a glass of water. Don't engage them in spiritual discourse proclaiming to them the truth about Jesus. 2 John verses 10 and 11 have frankly been misused as if it gives a person apostolic authority to be a jerk. John is not saying withhold any kind of kindness, but he's addressing this real pressing pressing issue to say, don't offer them support. Don't lend them aid in their mission. Don't give them the credibility of looking like they have your approval. Then he goes beyond saying decline aid to deceivers, and at the end of verse 10 all the way through verse 11, he says to disassociate. From deceivers. Picking up at the end of verse 10, he says, Neither bid them God's speed. For he that bids him God's speed is a partaker of his evil deeds. The term Godspeed is one of those old Englishisms that has not really stood the test of time. The Greek word here is kyrene. You might remember that I talked about it last week as being a common word of greeting in the first century. John says, don't even offer them a greeting because when you offer them a greeting, you are participating in their evil works. Again, John's not advocating here being a discourteous person in the name of Christ, but to give this warm welcome The word here actually comes from the word meaning rejoice. To give a warm welcome to a false teacher who John has just shown as a deceitful antichrist is not a show of love to them or a show of love to your neighbors. Even giving that kind of verbal affirmation makes you a participant in their evil work. And again, I know that that sounds harsh. I like what... John Stott has to say about this verse. He says, if John's instruction still seems harsh, it is because his concern for the glory of the Son and the good of men's souls is greater than ours and because the tolerance on which we pride ourselves is in reality an indifference to truth. Living, out, living this out in any kind of practical manner today, is going to get you labeled as harsh, or unloving, intolerant. You belligerent Pharisee. Especially in our society in which we have embraced tolerance as if tolerance is the pinnacle of love. It's not. There is a difference between love and acceptance between love and approval. Love is demanded from us by our loving Savior who loved in everything that he ever did at every moment. But that love that he showed was paired with truth in all things. And so if an individual who is in opposition to the truth If you encounter that individual and their opposition to the truth, the most compelling way to show and display love to them is by showing them that you love the truth. Now, is that a violation of love? No. Think of it this way. If I'm engaging in some activity which is destructive to myself or others, The demands of genuine love is that you don't offer to assist me in that destruction. These false teachers were not only in danger of eternal wrath themselves, but they were also drawing others toward it. And so what is a Christian to do to display love? To ignore the truth? To to smile and nod? To greet them and say, hey brother, I hope you have a productive day damning yourselves and others. This is why the the foundation of this letter that's set in verses one through six is just vitally important. We do not stand for truth sometimes and love sometimes. We live in truth and love at all times. We do not offer support, affirmation, or even... Casual approval to soul-condemning falsehoods. Now let me just offer a word or two of practical application. And I feel like this is important, since I don't think Joel Osteen is going to show up at your door tomorrow and ask if he can spend the night. In what ways might we find the message of 2 John practical today? And let me say as, I guess, as a qualification, thus saith Jason, not thus saith the Lord, although I will say I think I have the sense of the spirit here in the examples I'm going to give. So let me offer four modern practical examples of this principle that John has given us. If a Mormon or Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, say hello (laughs) if they're thirsty Give them a glass of water. Speak kindly but directly. Let them know that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Creator God who made heaven and earth. And unless you repent of your sins and turn from this wickedness, you will face God's wrath even for the things that you're pretending to do in His name at this moment. And when they leave, which they probably will pretty quickly, Don't stand at the door and wave and smile and say, have a great day. If a church member is denying the truth of Christ, either by going beyond the truth in what they believe or by transgressing the teaching of Christ in the way that they behave, address it. When a church, procl- when, when a church member proclaims doctrine that is untruthful or remains unrepentant about sin that, that is a contrary behavior to Christ, there is no such thing as, well, it's not hurting anybody. It's hurting them and it's hurting those who see them. To go forward just ignoring it is not an act of love. Third, if someone you love, say a family member, invites you to their same-sex wedding, I think the principle that John lays out here is that your presence would be a sign of approval. You're not called to be hateful or to be rude, but you are called to truth, and any act of love has to be grounded in the truth, and on that basis, I would not be able to attend. When your work, this is the last one, when your work sends you an email insisting that you use everyone's preferred gender pronouns, it might be wise to try to just not use any pronouns whatsoever, But when that doesn't work, I would apply this principle. Since truth and love are inseparable, we cannot embrace any situation which requires a denial of truth from us or a misrepresentation of truth to others. Those are just four examples. And the number of examples we could come up with are almost limitless but truth and love are never to be balanced against each other they are to be fully embraced at all times now there's two more verses in second john but all I'll note about them is the urgency with which john wrote this as this congregation he's writing to was facing or about to face this difficult situation John was determined that this principle of of truth and love could not wait. So he says in verse 12, having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink, but I trust to come unto you and to speak face to face that our joy may be full. Now, you, you get that? Another way of saying verse 12 is, I'm on my way and everything else can wait But this can't. This is urgent. We're going to see each other face to face. Actually, literally in Greek, it's kind of interesting. It's mouth to mouth. But face to face or eyeball to eyeball is the way that we would say it. And when we see each other face to face, I'm going to have more to say. We can speak to each other about the truth. We can show each other love. And our joy can be filled. But this message, you have to have this right now. It can't wait. Love without truth is not love. Truth without love is not truth. And if you want to live in truth and love, you're only going to find that through Repentance of your sins and embracing the true Son of God, Jesus Christ, as your Savior. And because of our dedication to Jesus, we can't embrace any situation which requires a denial of truth from ourselves or a misrepresentation of truth to others.